Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Wealth Chat. I am back in studio today. I hope you all enjoyed the series from San Diego. It was a very insightful trip. I got to meet a lot of interesting people. And of course, we brought some of that back with us in the segments that we released. So I hope you guys checked all of those out. I am very excited for today's episode because I have two very illustrious professors, I'll say, uh, from Toronto Metropolitan U University, formerly known as Ryerson. Um, thank you for being here. Very happy you guys could make it. Our pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Of course. Um, now, before we get started, uh, please introduce yourselves. We can go with you, Abraham. Yeah. So I'm Abraham uh, Begheri. I'm a professor of electrical computer and biomedical engineering. I'm a computer scientist by, by training. Um, I hold a Canada Research Chair in Social Information Retrieval, uh, and I lead the uh, Answer Create program on Responsible AI, and I'm very happy to be here. Fantastic. And I'm Naimul Khan. I am a professor in also in electrical computer and biomedical engineering. And I also have a cross appointment with the creative school at TMU uh, through the Master of Digital Media program. I also come from a computer science background. So a lot of overlap with <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Bagheri. And, uh, but then I did my PhD in engineering and my research is uh, in mostly in uh, application of AI in healthcare and with some uh, digital media alternatives of that as well. Fantastic. Well, I, you guys are the perfect people to have here because my last episode, um, we discussed AI language models. And I feel like there's so much more there that we can dive into, but also just social media. And Abraham, to your point about ethical AI, you and I had a discussion previously where we spoke about some of these points. Uh, I think that's become very prominent now and it's definitely needed. Um, so why don't we start with, uh, we'll start with AI language models. So we've seen ChatGPT. Um, it, it sort of took the world by storm, I'll say. And as I mentioned before, it was something that I fell in love with very instantaneously and then became horrified of shortly after once I realized the potential of it. So what are your guys' thoughts on AI language models? And if you want to take a moment to also explain what they are from your perspective. Mm -hmm. I take it first. Um, sure, I can go first. Um, so, uh, as you said, like it has taken the world by storm. But interestingly, from a research perspective, like the solutions that has been incorporated into tools like ChatGPT has been around for a while, right? Like say, I would say for a while by by for a while I mean like 2017, 18, right? But it's just uh, when they put a chat interface in front of it. And it works uh, so well, like at least perceived that it works so well, right? Like, so the first, so the first reaction was, as you said, like the whole world was taken by storm. But if you see, like, as an academic, I'm a bit of a cynic, right? Of course, right? So mm -hmm. as you can see, like the, you know, the kind, it's kind of dying down a little bit, like the initial excitement that was around chat GPT, right? So what I would say is that, of course, uh, language models have a lot of uh, potential in making different workflows easier but we have to still uh, treat language models as just another assistive tool that makes life easier just like, like how when internet came things became easier to do after language models after the advent of ai like things are just going to become a little easier to do but we always have to think about uh, it as an assistive tool not as like uh, for lack of better words, like our AI overlord as like, as it's being depicted, right? So we have to take care of this. That's my like, conservative take on language <laughs> models. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with, um, with a lot of things Namel said. 
I'm a bit more uh, skeptical about technology in general, but I would say language models, specifically ChatGPT, in my opinion, is the marketing feat of the century, actually. Um, so language models have been around for a long time. Uh, language modeling technology started in the 1970s. So it's been a long time people have been developing language models. The I think the what happened with large language models with ChatGPT and the ones that followed was that there was a systematic approach of collecting label data, which revolutionized the effectiveness of language models. Right? So just for, for those who don't maybe know the, how the language models work, essentially language models are statistical methods that predict the next word given a sequence of input text. So when you talk to a language model, you put in the so-called prompt. You put in a question, you put in a certain text, and you say, can you complete this for me? Or can you answer this question? The language model doesn't actually create a semantic representation of your question the way humans do and then try to answer it. What it does is that it says, okay, I've seen this sequence of terms. What is the most likely next term that should appear after? So if you say, when was Barack Obama born? The language model doesn't understand that question. It just says, I've seen so much text in the past. What is the most likely term that should come after this term? So it's just predicting probabilities. And so the way language models are traditionally trained is you take a whole bunch of text off the internet or books or Wikipedia or so on, and you compute all these probabilities, right? Because you've seen sequences of terms appearing one after the other. Now, what OpenAI and other companies like Google and Facebook have started doing is instead of taking all these unlabeled data that's from the internet and books and so on, they've actually gone ahead and created manually labeled data, lots and lots and lots of this data. So they've got people sitting behind a computer collecting question answering data sets and things like that. So, it, so the language model now actually sees a lot of things, so it, it can actually provide better estimates of what is the most likely next term that appears. And because it's seen so much samples, the questions, the, the answers that it provides become quite reasonable. Um, so they have this so-called uh, so concept of reinforcement learning with human feedback. Uh, and the way it works is that the language model provides you an answer, and then there's a human being sitting there looking at the answer that the language model provided, and they say, okay, no, this is not good. Uh, or, yes, this is a pretty good answer. And the language model updates its estimates of generating the next sequence. And therefore, because it's going through this process of retraining all the time, it keeps on providing better and better answers the more feedback it receives, right? So the take, um, I think this concept of, wow, language models are now able to understand us is kind of a myth because the language model, unlike humans that create these mental models of concepts and then provide answers, language models don't build the mental, con mental models or the concepts or representations. They just provide, calculate estimates and start generating text. So um, that was my long way of saying language model don't possess, in my view, th this is debatable, of, obviously, but my view, they don't possess the intelligence um, that you 
they don't have the self-consciousness of analyzing concepts and then generating answers. They're basically just doing statistical models of estimating what is the most likely term that comes next. And if you think of it that way, it becomes less scary, um, less of an existential threat um, or something that has its own mind and tries to take over the world or make dangerous decisions and so on. And it becomes, as Namel said, a tool that you can use along with all these other tools to make workflows better, your daily tasks better. Well, I mean, I will say that language models sure have fooled me because I thought they had brains of their own, <laughs> with, given the way that they interact. But that's really fascinating. Now, I did not realize that they've been around since the 1970s. What was what were they like back then? Like, what was the, I suppose, the first iteration? Yeah, so um, every, everything you do, for instance, on a daily basis with a search engine yep. is powered by a language model. So you input a query into your search engine, and that query needs to be processed. And what the search engine does is, given this query, what is the most likely document that uh, I need to present to the user? How do I do that? I need The search engine would need to calculate what is the likelihood of a document being relevant to a query, right? So again, a statistical estimation of relevance. And so there's a language model sitting behind this technology of search that says, here are a set of terms that the user is looking for. In other words, the query. Here are all the documents on the internet that I can search for and retrieve. What is the document that I should present to the user? It's just a language model sitting there saying, for this set of terms, this is the best document that should come next. It's a statistical prediction of the likelihood, right? So, oh, That's really fascinating. So I suppose Google would be the best language model out there then. Yeah, because even if you think about like chatbots, like ChatGPT is essentially a chatbot. Chatbots have been around for like since the language models have been around, as Ibrahim was saying, right? Like Microsoft had a chatbot named Eliza, I believe, right? So that was like, years ago, right? Like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even longer, right? So it's just, now it just seems, it's just perceived as better because as uh, Ibrahim was saying that there are actually real humans sitting in front of computers for hours, just clicking what's a good response, what's not a good response, right? Like they're just chatting, like there are basically jobs that they're chatting with ChatGPT for hours at a time and just saying that, oh, this answer is good, this answer is not good. And as consumers, when we're using it for an hour at a time daily, we're essentially getting the best answer because of this work by like unnamed uh, people that are putting in the work for like hours and hours to label the data, right? And this is why, so I always say that, and I know it may uh, like uh, sound bad, but I always say that current AI is essentially a very glorified uh, lookup table, right? That you put a query, it finds the best answer from a table which has like billions and trillions of data points and gives you the best answer of course it's i'm overly simplifying it but that's essentially what it is since there's so much data that has been used to train these models we get such a good answer that that's really interesting and i suppose uh just the thought of like how much computing power it would take to go through those trillions of records in order to come up with the oh my goodness the statistical possibility of what will be the correct answer mm -hmm. uh well i haven't like no i hasn't been explained that way to me and i'm just thinking about it now and, and that 
is really amazing. Like I suppose what humans have been able to accomplish oh, yeah. with this and what's continuously happening. Um, for, I mean, a big part of this is obviously AI. And I saw that uh, Sophia, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the AI robot Sophia, mm-hmm. um, her, uh, along with uh, 50 of her other friends, <laughs> were invited to Geneva for the UN's AI for Good conference mm-hmm. or summit. Um, and, and it's really fascinating because when I think about AI, it's, again, it's amazing when you think about the possibilities, mm-hmm. but the same on the other side of the coin is also the the risks, the ethics of it. Um, and that is, of course, something that you both look into a fair bit, given your, uh, you know, uh, subject matter expertise. But uh, I'm curious, like, what, how do you feel we're handling AI so far? And like, the fact that we have these more humanoid robots, such as Sophia, and, you know, she has like a humanoid skin that been given to her but it's really interesting because our, she doesn't have hair um i don't know i was just making a joke the other day so that she stays cool and she doesn't get too <laughs> hot-headed if her if, her, if like the dome on her head is uh covered but it like she's there she's interacting with people she's you know sophia has gone on uh tv shows uh she has told jokes that were quite funny like uh, she attempted to tell a knock-knock joke a few years ago which was quite interesting um okay how do you, when you see this, how do you take it? Uh, you know, what is your perspective on, oh my God, this is good, or oh my God, this is not good, or this is somewhere in the middle? I, um, I actually don't have a position on this being good or, or bad. Um, on, I'll, I'll tell you an example of an experiment we did with a colleague, uh, Professor Froke Zeller. Um, so a couple of years ago, Froke had this idea of of a hitchhiking robot. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, the name was Hitch, Hitchbot. And the idea was that there's a robot where you put it on East Canada, it will hitchhike its way to West Canada all the way without the creator's intervention. Um, so interesting thing was that this robot didn't actually have much um, technical capabilities. It was just a stand like your regular camera stand and then it was a bucket around it which was its torso and then we had like a piece of other plastic thing sitting on top and it just had some lcds as its eyes and it had a set of things pre-recorded that it would just say so not much intelligence and the idea was we put this on the side of the road and then people will see and maybe they pick it up and then they put it in their car, they take it so far they can, and then they drop it off the side of the road and then mm. somebody else picks it up. And, and I, I, one of the ideas of this experiment was trust making between technology and humans, right? So you see a robot looking thing on the side of the road, how much do you trust that technology without knowing what's inside that technology, right? It could be complicated AI, it could be nothing. Um, And so the interesting thing was that the robot actually did make its way from East to West Canada, and then repeated the experiment in in Germany. Um, People actually took the robot to their weddings, they (laughs) took it to to, uh, bars with them, they partied with the robot, there was social media was full of the photos and all of that. (laughs) 
So I think the I think the core morale of that story is that regardless of how complicated the technology is, whether it's AI, whether it's quantum computer, whatever technology you're talking about, if you're integrating this technology with humans' daily lives, what is the trust-making mechanism, right? Me as a human, I want to interact with a, with a robot or I want to interact with an app on my phone or I go to a website and I interact with it. How do I, what are the mechanisms through which I will trust the technology to be my advocate would be good for me to use, right? And I think we're at the point where the AI technology has moved so fast where people haven't really thought about the trust-making or elements of trust in there. And therefore, and there's lack of understanding of how this technology works. So as, you, as soon as you see there's an app that's AI inside it. Is this scary? Should I be using it? Is it going to take over my life? Is it going to change? So that element of what is it AI that's capable and how should we be integrating AI into products or our daily lives so that people actually trust? Um, and that, that's not just a technical question, right? So um, it wouldn't be the AI researchers who would solve that problem at the end, right? Um, it's like, genetically modified products on the shelves. Do I buy them? Are they good? Or is there a problem with that? And then it's not the geneticists who would solve that problem, right? You would have a whole host of other um, socio-technical aspects to it. You have lawyers and you have people from, um, you know, NGOs and, and so on who come in and say, you know, if you want to deliver, um, you know, non-organic, genetically modified food. This is what you need to do. And this is how you make the customers uh, trust uh, and use it. So I think we're at a point where technology is moving quite fast, but all the other components that require the integration of technology into our daily lives is, is kind of lagging far behind. Ibrahim had some excellent points about it. Like we have to build the trust between technology and humans. And and the most important thing that Ibrahim mentioned is that it's not a engineering problem or a computer science problem, right? If you think about it, right, that uh, the so-called AI that we have currently, it still sits on a computer and the things that it's solving is still all software-based. Like, why don't we have a robot butler that can do all household chores, right? Mm -hmm. You would think that that would be like making AI solve the minute things uh, that we need to be done at home will be more important than like say making AI art, right? Because that's a creative process. So you think that the creative process will be left to humans. The reason it's not happening is because from a robotics point of view, right? We're not there yet, right? Like, uh, of course, because robotics, like uh, that's why like even if you think about self-driving cars, right? We don't, why don't we have self-driving cars on the street yet? Because from a technological point of view, interacting with the real world and actually interacting like uh, humans having the tactile feeling of things it's not as easy a problem as just feed an algorithm trillions of data points it spits out an answer that looks like humans right so all the the companies what they're trying to do is for example even uh, sophia right i have a lot of reservation about sophia because <laughs> if you just take Sophia out and put a computer in there people are not going to be as impressed because you know like even sophia some of these responses are pre-programmed right it's not even like chat gpt based which probably would be a little better but they're giving it a humanoid form because they're trying to anthropomorphize the ai so that uh, people think that oh we're talking to like a living being right 
but if we do that without taking the uh, like the socio technical context in consideration as ibrahim was saying the problem is that there will be a lot lot of mistrust because if you read any of the ai existential threat uh, articles now you see the top photo is probably a humanoid right like a robot like standing with a gun or a robot standing with a tablet or something but chat gpt is just a computer chat interface we are not there yet a robot cannot really act human like yet right so uh, like the companies are pushing these things as marketing uh, gimmicks but then that's creating mistrust in people but from the technology solution people who are actually developing that technology right like like ibrahim and i we know the limitations behind it but we need a bridge between the two oh that that makes sense and it, it again it is interesting how marketing and hollywood always tend to yeah. uh, exaggerate things i mean who would have thought that movies would be exaggerated right um but to your point like sofia is when i first saw sofia i became very fascinated and so i've been following her journey and you know she's won awards and done some amazing things a lot of accomplishments and um you know to this point of doing good for society um another robot that's been out there it's named grace and so grace has been trained to help with the elderly so she's mm. she's a nurse essentially in nursing care i believe she's based in japan where she's actually like interacts with people and she helps them through physiotherapy mm. and you know she she's she's a nurse and um if, when we look at our demographics um you know like in the financial industry like we're always talking about the baby boomers for instance retiring what their needs will be and medical needs is a, a big one and it's something that seems to be on this linear projection where it just keeps getting higher and higher yeah. um but we don't fully have the the younger generation to support that right like not not everyone is going within those fields um we have shortages in different types of uh, like the trades is a good example of where we have shortages so in that case back to your point of coexistence mm-hmm. you know perhaps we use these robots we use ai and you know ai language models to to help us fill fill the gaps that are needed in our society oh yeah absolutely i i wouldn't disagree and i think uh, and i said my i'm kind of agnostic to technology being good or bad it's just depends on how you develop it you can develop technology for great things or you can develop technology for really really bad things um it's just the way you think about technology development should be from as you say from a needs basis point of view not from the technology point of view what we have going on right now is that here's the technology let's see what we can build right we we're using this hammer that we have to try to solve everything um we were having a a conversation earlier with uh, with some colleagues um who were at Brookfield who were looking at ai adoption in canada and the main question they were asking was why do you think there are so few com- companies in canada who have adopted ai what can we do to accelerate ai adoption and my question to them was why do you think all companies should adopt ai to begin with like mm-hmm. if it's like 6% let it be if there's more companies who think they need ai to be integrated then they will find a way to integrate it if they don't feel the need you don't need to push like not every uh, workshop needs to have a big hammer or a sledgehammer but maybe <laughs> they don't need it 
Um, so I think the perspective, your example was a fascinating one. Um, helping elderly, what are the needs? What are the gaps? How can technology help solve some of those problems? So if we go from real problems and then think, and it doesn't have to be AI, it can be AI, it can be multimedia, it can be anything. Um, what is the problem? What, do we, what does it take for us to solve it? And then see if technology, AI, large language models can help. That way, you make sure that technology is used for social good, right? But if you start from the technology, you create ripple effects of problems that then you have to chase and try to solve. You know, you've bu you're building technology um, to, for instance, um, use it in, you know, HR systems to create short list of candidates. And so what you end up with is that all the male candidates are shortlisted and all the females are, are you know, removed. And then you say, why did this happen? Can we solve this problem? And then you start so creating another technology solution to solve that problem. And then you find out there's another bunch of problems with that technology that you created. So trying to solve problems that don't exist with technology will create more problems and more problems. And you try to create more technological solutions that then create more technology problems. So I think, you know, I fully agree with you. We need to start from what are our problems? What does it take for us to solve those problems? And is AI a part of that solution? If it's, it is, then sure, let's think about it. If it's not, we don't have to push it, in my opinion. And you brought up a really interesting point there, which is around bias, right? Because uh, as you guys mentioned, you're working on developing these technologies. You're human. Um, and as human, we all have biases. So how many of our biases make it through to the technology, to the code, to what we feed these machines? And Numa, you mentioned earlier that a chat GPT, for instance, and all these other language models are being trained by humans where they sit there and they say, yes, good, bad, right? That is, again, a human. Mm -hmm. And so not all of us think alike. Mm -hmm. We're not the same. We all have our own biases. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be a big issue in my opinion when it comes to AI and AI language models is bias and how do you eliminate it. Um, I think part of it has to do with the fact that um, we all sometimes are in bubbles ourselves. So like, you know, if I think about people, for instance, in the IT industry or in the consulting world or in the financial world, you know, where we tend to be around like-minded people. And sometimes that can narrow our, our view, our perspective of the world. And we might unintentionally hold a certain bias that we don't mean to. So how do you overcome that? Have you guys uh, come up with any ideas? <laughs> So that's a very loaded question, right? <laughs> like, as, as you know, like, that's a question that's been asked uh, throughout the world. It's actually very, uh, there's no easy answer to it. But like, I think the main thing is we have like, everyone, like, especially engineers that are developing the solutions needs to be aware of this issue because sometimes they are not, right? Like, for example, to remove bias, now the companies, especially OpenAI, they're putting something called alignment, right? That, okay, we're going to align the AI to a specific view so that it doesn't generate say hateful content or something but when you think about it like humans they are not homogeneous right so alignment to whom right so when you are saying alignment now uh, yesterday i saw an article that they are uh, creating a program called super alignment when one ai is gonna help another ai to align its view so think about it right like as ibrahim was saying right like uh, Problems begate problems, right? Like uh, bias begates bias, right? So 
if an AI is trying to fix another AI, it's not gonna solve the issue of bias, right? And and another very interesting point to brought up is that uh, I like because since I work in uh, AI applications in healthcare, you see that in healthcare the adoption is very slow. Why is that? Because when we think about uh, healthcare applications in AI, right away alarm bells go off, right? That oh, our health gets affected, so we have to be very careful. Like you are not gonna send out uh, X-ray images to like unnamed people to tag that okay which extra has a lesion and which extra doesn't have a lesion you are going to use doctors for that but when you are developing a consumer applications what they're doing is as i said they're hiring farms the farms are going to other countries right and probably like workers with low wages that are sitting in front of a computer 14 hours a day and tagging uh, tagging away right so in a in an environment like that what is the quality of the tag that we are getting right so this uh, the whole AI uh, revolution started with this uh, data set uh, called uh, ImageNet, right? Like you know how we can detect that where there's an apple here in the image, or while there's a whether there's a car in the image. That started with that data set, right? So it was so that that data set actually got the idea that hey, we can outsource this labeling. So they used a uh, 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 technology called Amazon. Amazon has a technology called Mechanical Turk, where you can hire uh, hourly paid workers to tag these images right so that's what they did so they have a million images in imagenet right and imagenet started this kind of this uh, deep learning ai revolution so uh, i think two years ago there was an article about biases in uh, the imagenet data set right so what researchers found is that because since a million images is tagged with like thousand labels People just trained AI, they're like that, oh, we get 90% accuracy, we don't care. Like no one actually looked at the data properly. So a researcher found out that there are labels in there that are like considered uh, like very bad slangs, like racial slangs. And it has been perpetrated throughout all the AI algorithms that we use, right? No one bothered to actually look at the data and think about because you get a 90% accuracy, who cares what the data, who cares who labeled the data, right? So. Yeah, from from uh, working in healthcare AI applications, I see that these things are uh, treated uh, very critically, right? Because we know that, oh, it's our health, but no one thinks about that, what can happen to your mental health when you see a slang term appearing uh, beside your image, right? Which can happen when bias like this is perpetuated through the data. Oh, that's really fascinating that we're so focused on accuracy, you know, 90%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're, we're worth 90%. So if we miss a few, it's okay. And those few can be very detrimental because, mm -hmm. like, as you mentioned, you don't know how people are going to feel when they see certain things. They can, I would even think that kind of uh, sort of destroy brand, right? If, um, if I'm like loyal to a brand and I go on there and I see something terrible and it's meant to be related to me, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure if you guys like me, I like you, but this is just, this mm -hmm. doesn't feel right. Right. And it's, so what uh, I think Nemo's um, example is a brilliant one um, because ImageNet gets, you, you get algorithms that are, have pretty high accuracy, but the, there are certain parts where the algorithm fails. And it's not because that portion is a small portion in the real world. It's because that sub uh, subset hasn't been covered properly in the data set. So, for instance, 
faces collected in ImageNet, I think over 70% of images are white North American European faces. And about 2%, I think, are from Indian faces and 1% Asian faces. So the distribution of images of faces in that data set is not representative of the population at large in the world. So while you test your algorithms on that data set and you only have, you know, a 1% of Asian faces in there, and if you get all of them wrong, you're still 99% right. But that, that 1% is not actually 1% of the, your real population. It's probably 50% of your population that you're mislabeling. Um, the example, the concrete example was the algorithms trained on ImageNet were put into Google Photos. And there were reports that Google Photos was mislabeling African-Americans as gorillas. Uh, and mm -hmm. so they had to pull that technology off of uh, Google, right? Because the, the label data in that data set was, was flawed. Uh, another example was when they used ImageNet to open your iPhone. So they, you could look in your, your camera and it'll detect your face. And there were people in, in China who reported that their friends could open their iPhones just because there were so few Asian faces in the data set that the, the, the system, the AI algorithm, would just assume that any Asian face was the same. And it would just open people's phones for their friends. And so they had to pull that technology out and, and retrain it and fix the problem. So um, even if you think about accuracy, it's not actual real accuracy. It's this made-up accuracy on the data set that you're working with. Um, so it creates it's great problems. And so I, I want to go back to to your your question about what do we do with bias, right? Uh, so some of the work um, we've been doing in the past couple of years in, in my lab is biases created by search engine. I think probably everyone's seen reports that say, you know, if you search for a nurse, you get all female nurse photos. If you search for a police officer, you get all male police officer photos back from a search engine. But what we've shown actually is it's even deeper than that. Performance on queries that are related to the female gender, for instance, have weaker results on general uh, compared to queries that are related to male uh, gender. So it's, it's systematic. It's not about biases being exhibited. It's also about performance. And if you think about how people make decisions, Right now, um, I think there's 5 billion searches done per day by people on search engines. Um, and about over 90% of all, maybe even over 95% of access to internet goes through a search engine. So even if we know where we're going, we still search, right? And so the search engine has the possibility of showing you links the way they want you to think. So they're shaping... The things you think about you go you search for COVID the links they show you actually shape what you think about COVID um, you search stock market prices whatever the search engine shows you shapes what you think about the stock market or specific parts of it you search about you know you have a six-year-old kid you search for educational material Google shows you educational material that you need to you know educate your kid about that shapes the fabric of your family, because that's what you're going to show your kid and that's how they're thinking and so on. So technology with search 
is actually shaping our thoughts, our beliefs, our decisions, and so on. And when you think how these search engines actually incorporate biases, right? So think about you search for educational material for a five-year-old girl, you get lower quality results compared to when you search for educational material for a five-year-old boy. And so that actually impacts uh, how you bring up your kids and how your kids are exposed to learning opportunities and so on. Um, so the bigger question is, how do we address these problems? And again, I think I go back to my initial stand. I don't think there is a technological solution per se to solve this. There needs to be a broader social approach to understanding biases caused by technology. So I'll give you an example and I'll make it short. Um, so, you know, misinformation is big, right? And, you know, Namel can, can tell you that there's, you know, every year a couple of thousand papers published on how to detect fake news with, mm -hmm. with uh, deep learning techniques, right? Um, but a couple of years ago, some Scandinavian countries started looking at this problem and said, is there a technological solution to the misinformation problem? In other words, should we create an AI algorithm that tells Namel that you're on this website, this is fake news, don't read this? That's not the solution. The solution is you go into schools and you educate the kids right from the beginning to say, do not believe everything you read on the internet. You're on Twitter, your friends tweet things, very likely untrue. You go on Google, Google tells you this, very unlikely that it's true. You're reading news, um, you're on this certain news outlet, very likely fake news. So you educate, you give media literacy to your kids. So when they're exposed to content, they have these critical thinking skills that helps them make the right decisions, right? Um, so I think it's the same thing with AI. You know, I, I, I have this app, is this safe? Would there be another AI technology that tells me, install this app, it's good for you? <laughs> probably not, right? I probably will need the skills to determine before I install this app on my phone, I need to make some judgments, right? Critically think about the decision I'm making in terms of interacting with technology. And you would only be able to have that if you have the right education, right? So you need to put the educational things in place. You need to engage kids from young ages. You need a public consultation of what people think about AI, how they deal with it on a daily basis. So it's, it's a social problem that we need to address from the roots. Wow. You said so many great things. So I'm going to try to unpack a few because I feel like there's a lot to dive in there. Um, first, with uh, the whole faces mm. uh, debacle, I mean, that's just awful what, what's occurred there. But I think that goes back to the point of diversity and inclusion and why pretty much everywhere you go, there's a big push towards it. Like at my firm, we're always you know, all about being inclusive, being diverse, because we are an IT and consulting firm. So we do help. Uh, also build technology and for us it's important to try to address some of those issues and the way you address it to your point Abraham is not always with technology but with people mm -hmm. and figuring out what's going on so yeah. if you have a more diverse workforce they would know okay no you need a bigger set of mm -hmm. these types of faces in order to make sure that you determine things properly so I think that's been a really good thing that has taken place in the workplace is we are 
pushing for broader view instead of just like a very narrowed lens that we've traditionally had. Um, now, uh, the critical thinking portion that you mentioned, I feel like that's a really important one. And uh, Namal and I had this conversation as well before, and that is just, you know, learning and, and schooling and how important it is because um, as you brought up, Abraham, like if you go online, you're constantly being driven one way or another. And there's unfortunately always a motive. It's not always a bad motive, but there's usually a motive behind why you're being driven one way or another. Um, I, I didn't know that, you know, uh, if you were to look in search results for boys versus girls, that there was such a big discrepancy. That's quite disheartening. Um, and hopefully it's a systematic issue that can be fixed. Um, and I think the first step towards fixing it is to, again, have conversations about it and to bring it to light so that people are aware that this exists. Um, and some of these issues can obviously be difficult to talk about. It can get a bit controversial. But again, you can't fix a problem if you don't shed some light on it. Mm. Right. That's always uh, that's my approach anyway, is that if you want to fix something, you need to first address it. And accept that it's there. You can't fix something if you're not going to admit that it that exists. That that's just not how it works. Um, so, Nemo, I would love to bring you in here. When it comes to, uh, we can speak about diversity. We can speak about uh, some of uh, the systematic issues that exist with search engines. Uh, you know, what's your perspective? What have you seen? Do you have any solutions for us? And so, uh, as Ibrahim was saying, like, the problem is that. We always think about this uh, solution from a technical point of view, and that is never going to work, right? So for the the great example that Ibrahim provided for Google Photos uh, tagging African-Americans as gorillas, you know what their solution to that problem was? They just removed it. So what they did was, now if you have human faces, it doesn't, doesn't just uh, tag it as human anymore, right? Like basically, they're like that, okay. Uh, we have a problem, let's just get rid of the thing altogether instead of trying to solve the problem, right? Trying to actually uh, incorporate ethicists into the conversation, like social scientists into the conversation that how do we tackle this type of uh, diversity issues, right? Uh, so uh, I think the solution is, as I said, we, we're not going to have an overnight technical solution, never. Technology is never going to solve it. We just have to be aware that whenever we are using technology, there is some inherent bias in it. You have to be aware of it and think about it that if we start the awareness from uh, like school, as Ibrahim was saying, like I don't want to badmouth my own program, of course, but in our engineering program, we have one ethics course in fourth year. And like it also like it's kind of uh, a bit superficial, super, superficial, right? So now what we are trying to do is in each course, we are trying to bring in a little bit of this type of conversations, right? So. I teach a first year programming course. So in the first lecture, I talk a little bit about that. Okay, you are learning programming. You're going to do great things. You're going to be software engineers. You're probably going to go and work for Google, right? But think about even a line of code that you are writing, what impact it may have on society. So going back to the facial recognition problem, like why there is a bias in it, right? You can't even, uh, it's not like people did it maliciously, right? So the first facial recognition algorithm that was developed was back in like based on a data set called the Yale face data set. So Yale back in the 70s, think about the racial uh, like uh, racial diversity in Yale in 70s, probably not a lot, right? So it's not like the engineers that developed or computer scientists that developed that facial recognition algorithm were intentionally doing it that, oh, I'm just gonna not going to include any diversity. They 
didn't even think about it because there was no diversity around them. So as you, as, as you were saying, right, this is why it's so important to be diverse in your workforce, uh, diverse in terms of your student population when it comes to universities and teach students uh, to be aware of uh, these things that just because you are writing a program for Google, like uh, maybe you're writing a little script that just scrapes data from, uh, from the internet. As an engineer, you'll probably be thinking about that. How can I make it fast enough? You're not even going to think that. How can I make it diverse enough? So if you uh, teach kids from school that you always have to think about these uh, things, that how to be more inclusive, how not to trust everything, how to look at a technology from a critical angle, only then we're going to come up with a holistic solution as a whole, as a society. Otherwise, it's just a technology and another AI cannot solve this problem. Right? So. As much as we love doing it, right? Mm -hmm. As engineers, sometimes we get excited that, oh, I removed the bias by tweaking a parameter in the algorithm, but it's not gonna, it's just not gonna last. Oh, so you can't just keep compounding AI on top of each other <laughs> until the problem gets solved. <laughs> 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 um, no, that, so I think this also leads to another important concept, and this is something that we've discussed before, Abraham, in our conversation, which was data, right? Because all of this stuff is based on data. And um, I, I feel like, especially when it comes to social media, when it comes to just really any app that you download, you give so much of yourself away without even realizing it. Um, like I've, I've said this many times before, but like I cannot think of a time where I read user agreements and then said, yes. I fully understand what I'm signing up for. I agree with this. Take everything there is from my phone and just like let me play the game of solitaire, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's just it, it, it doesn't happen. Like it's not realistic. And I another, I mean, part of it is obviously a legal issue of why things like this are allowed when we're very well aware in society that no one out there is reading these user agreements. Mm -hmm. So why is it there? Because I don't believe they ever get upheld in court anyway. Because judges are people and they're rational and they realize that okay. There's no way anyone read, you know, in this 8.5 font of like 300 pages of, and also like very uh, difficult jargon sometimes, right? Like I don't, I'm not uh, fully aware of all the jargon mm -hmm. that's used in, you know, the social media industry or in the tech industry or data collections, um, statistics. So there could, even if I were to attempt to try to read it, the chances of me actually understanding everything fully is quite slim because I I'm confident that there's going to be things in there that are very important, very vital that I am not going to understand. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know why it's allowed. I think that's a legal issue. But right. uh, if you guys want to share any thoughts around that, I'm happy to hear them. Um, but back to this whole idea of data like and the fact that we give so much of ourselves away, um, all, so much of our data is harvested. Um, how do we, first of all, I suppose it can start with how do you, program better so that it, there's less data collection mm -hmm. but it's also how do you change behaviors so that people are more aware and this goes back to your critical thinking point as well of people being aware of what they're agreeing to instead of just blindly wanting the convenience of being able to do something and clicking i you know I, yes i agree please proceed yeah um yeah i think that's a great point there are multiple aspects to what you mentioned um I'll address a couple. I think to your point about EULA, EULA agreements, um, my own perspective is that EULA is not supposed to 
be upheld in court. And I'm not a lawyer and, you know, take my points of view with a grain of salt. But my perspective is EULAs are not supposed to be upheld in courts. The purpose is for the company to use the data in the way they want, knowing that when you have uh, customers at mass, like you, you have an app and you have a million customers, it is very unlikely that any of these customers will take you to court. So the, the EULA will actually serve as a notice to you that I'm going to do this with, to, with your data, hoping that no one will take the company to court because the EULA will, in my opinion, will, will be held in court. And the reason is, for instance, in Canada, based on FIPA, um, consent is only uh, allowed if the person providing the consent understands what they're consenting to, right? So if, even if you understand the jargon in the EULA agreement, but since you don't know what data is being collected or how it's going to be used, still the consent that you provide is not a consent you understand. Therefore, it's meaningless. But as I said, the purpose of that EULA is not to have it legal, but just to say, hey, you, you're using this. I'm going to do this with your data. And you said, okay. Right? So it's just a way of providing a safety net, not from a legal perspective, but from, a, you know, this is what we're going to do. And this is, you know, you said yes. So that's, I think, that's the, the EULA perspective. Um, the the perspective of what what's being done to our data and and so on, I think I I want to go a step back and say um, data ownership in general is is really really important, right? Um, one of the things that uh, I want to mention is this intellectual property of artists, scholars, and just individuals. Uh, with regards to their data being used in large language models. Right? So, you know, there's now all these problems where people say, we didn't consent our book to be processed by the large language model, but apparently the large language model actually read our book and it knows everything about the book without having a license to use it. Or artists are now saying all the, you know, um, all of our artwork was apparently processed by this image processing application and it's generating um, artwork that's very similar to our stuff. How come the intellectual property of the artist or the scholar or the writer or a single individual is not being protected? Uh, and I think that's a big question because when you're generating content on the internet, you're not providing consent for that data to be used in any way the companies desire. Right. Um, so for just think about you're quite tired, you go home, you open Twitter and uh, you complain right, about your colleagues, your work, your employer, you know, <laughs> the city, the subway, things like that. You're just complaining to your friend. You're not consenting to a third party company to take your data and process it and then create applications that personalizes your experience. But that's what's happening. Right? So the there are data um, companies that specialize in data aggregation um, and they're specialized to identify your identity across platforms. Even when you hide your identity, it's very likely, in my opinion, over 70, 80% of the time, they will identify who you are based on 
your IP address, your location, the IEMI address on your phone. They identify all your devices or your social accounts. They connect all the dots and they sell your data to companies. But you never consented to the data being used. So I think going back to the education piece, I think personalization and your experience with technology, the smooth experience you have with technology comes at the cost of giving away your data and your privacy. So if, you know, if you think something's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true, right? So if you have this map application that when you open it up, it says, I think you're going to work. You don't need to even put it in here. Uh, take this route. It's much better. And you're going to, you love this coffee shop and you're going to pick up coffee from this coffee shop. It's, it's great. We love it. It's convenient, but it's coming at the cost of inviting, invading our privacy and collecting our data. And that's what they're showing you. Things they do with your data without showing you is probably, uh, you know, just showing you the route is probably the tip of the iceberg. Then everything else behind the scenes in terms of your mortgage rates, in terms of your car insurance rates, in terms of, you know, your risk of different things that you don't even know. And those are built being sold to different enterprises behind the scenes without you knowing is what's at stake. And so I think the education piece now says, is it worth it that your Google map or not Google map, but some map applications will actually take you to your favorite coffee shop without asking, but they also collect data on how much you spend on coffee each day and what you eat with your coffee Therefore, your risk of high blood um, sugar in your blood and therefore being at risk of etc, etc. And selling this to insurance companies that would then charge you more for you. Is it worth it? Right. And so once we in, understand the implications, I think as individuals, we would say, OK, maybe I don't need this app or that app. And if you don't fall into if we collectively don't fall into the trap of having all these nice apps, maybe the business doesn't work any longer and therefore it wouldn't be a viable business model to start collecting people's data, right? So if you're a responsible company who doesn't collect, maybe then you become profitable and people will install your app and engage with you. Right. I mean, th that is a lot. So it seems like if we want the finer things in life, we have to give up our privacy. I mean... <laughs> You don't have to, you just have to make the companies uh, more responsible so that they don't use your data against you or they don't collect the data, right? So Abraham touched up on some really good things about like the individual responsibility in privacy, right? So I wanted, I wanted to comment about the two things separately. One is privacy, one is the intellectual property ownership, but they are both connected. I think, of course, there is uh, individual, like you have to take on individual responsibility, you have to be aware of it uh, through like awareness and education, like tying back to the previous uh, question that we had, right? But I think uh, governance plays a big role here as well, right? So I wanted to provide a very recent example. Have have you uh, have you heard about Threads, the new app? Oh, by, yes. Uh, like, you know, so like uh, basically it's the Twitter competitor of, yes. uh, from uh, Facebook, right? Uh, so you'll see an interesting, uh, there is an interesting conversation going on that Threads, the app has not been released in Europe, right? Because 
in Europe, governance-wise, they came up with something called GDPR. I believe it stands for uh, General Data Protection Regulation, right? Yeah. So it's pretty strict in terms of what type of data can you collect from a person's phone, right? So uh, threads, uh, if you, uh, like, oh, of course, in North America, we don't have as strict uh, like regulation as GDPR. So because of GDPR, since Threads is collecting a lot more data compared to, say, Twitter or some other social media apps, it, like they haven't been able to release it. They have to adhere to the GDPR, right, to be able to release it in Europe. So governance works, right, because, of course, they're going to make changes to the app so that it adheres to GDPR so that it can be, because Europe is a big market, right? So take, So you kind of have to hit the company where it hurts, and that is their bottom line. Like, unfortunately, that's how private companies operate anyway, right? Uh, so this is coming from the privacy point of view, right? Uh, of course, GDPR itself has its own issues. I could go on about that, but again, it's, it's, a, good st it's a good start, right? But now going back to the... Uh, to the part that's the new, that's new in this generative AI hype, right? Like with ChatGPT and Stable Diffusion, Mid Journey, the image generators, like uh, intellectual property, right? Because the like basically now the definition of intellectual property needs to be refined there as well. Again, from a uh, from a regulation and governance point of view, right? Because uh, like artwork, like art, like art has been derivative, like like humans do derivative art as well, right? So the Proponents of AI, they will say that, oh, humans do it all the time. Why can't an AI do it, right? But there is a difference, right? With AI, like what you can do is you can actually generate, like exactly follow an artist's uh, style, just make minute changes, right? And then just, uh, and the problem is you can create a thousand copies of that in seconds, right? So the scale of it is uh, like uh, basically enormous, right? So like why why would someone pay that artist when you can do it for free by just putting in that uh, a landscape in the style of this artist right so why would you even bother going to that artist right so the artist's right needs to be protected here right and and also uh, so this this again comes from a governance point of view right like of course uh, like now there are some tools out there where you can uh, say like you can try to opt out of that okay my art should not be used to train an ai model right but the problem is again the responsibility is on the individual to do it right now instead of in in addition to that not instead in addition to that if we have a governance model where we say that okay if you are uh, if your art is say it's very hard to do technologically but if we could that if your art is like too similar to this artist you have to either pay this artist or the AI model cannot generate this art. If we had something like that from a governance point of view so that we can enforce the companies to do it, only then in like intellectual property of creatives will be uh, protected, right? And uh, besides all that, do we really want to live in a world, world where like just AI spits out like very mediocre art and mediocre stories that doesn't even make any sense, right? So that's another <laughs> point too, right? So. <laughs> it's it's interesting because there's actually been fierce debates as of late on is AI generated art actually art, right? And and I I find those conversations to be quite fascinating, um, but it it is important to note that this is something that firms are aware of as well. So for instance, if you um, I believe they started with celebrities, but like if you were to go and like upload a celebrity's picture and try to uh, configure it or you know change it somehow, mo do modifications to it, 
um, a lot of times they won't let you. They'll say, you know, no, this goes against our policies. We don't we don't do this type of thing. So I think that's a positive step. At least they're they are aware of it and they are trying to fix the issue. I did want to touch a bit more on the data point, though, like we were speaking about, uh, you brought up personalization and uh, the fact that giving up our data is what allows us to have that. So in the financial industry, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of open banking, open finance, but that's been the big push for the past little while. Um, and really the idea, open banking, open finance is all about data. And mm -hmm. it's about taking a consumer's data. So uh, let's say I have three uh, accounts, you know, like they can be investments accounts, I have two bank accounts, I have multiple credit cards, all with different institutions. Uh, the idea behind open banking is that there should be a way that I can easily connect all the data from all of them into one place so that there's a more comprehensive picture of me. So if I, for instance, work with a financial advisor, I can give that advisor access to my assets at these different locations, my liabilities, and they have all this information about me now, essentially, like my entire financial picture. Mm -hmm. And so when they advise me, it's it's better, more customized advice to me, right? They're not just focused on the little portion that I have with them, but they're focused on my big picture, essentially. Um, so when we speak about data, when we speak about AI, uh, like there's been a lot of work done here because in the financial industry, especially with advisors, it's all about giving that personal touch, right? Mm -hmm. Having customization so that your clients are happy with you and they want to stay with you because they feel like they're having meaningful conversations. The information that they're presented is relevant. And this is, of course, very important, especially to the younger generation, you know, because the days of like blasting out mass emails mm -hmm. is long gone. Like if I receive something from a financial institution in my inbox, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, okay, there, there's something wrong here. Why in the world are you sending me this, right? right. It, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. um, so the, we've had this, um, of course, um, we have a can open banking lead in Canada, uh, Abraham Tension, who has been tasked with providing the government recommendations for how we should ha implement open banking in Canada. It's been implemented in Europe, in Australia, um, to certain extents in the U.S. And we're really just trying to take uh, best lessons learned, best practices from each region, bring it to Canada um, and, you know, sort of use the wisdom that's out there to our advantage. Um, but AI has been a big component of this where it can be used to assist with, uh, you know, having, first of all, um, servicing relevant insights. Um, and also making more like predictive uh, suggestions, if you will. So, you know, you, you brought up the example of schooling, for instance. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a couple who have children and, um, oh, you know, the AI picks up from one of the CRM programs that this child is actually going to be going to kindergarten next mm -hmm. year. And perhaps this child has particular needs, right? And so now taking all that into account because you have this information, it can surface a list of schools that would be appropriate for that child. And then you have a meeting with your client and you say, oh, by the way, I know, you know, your child X is going to kindergarten in the fall. I don't know if this is something you struggle with. So here's a list of schools with these great programs that you can consider. And it's really an idea of just providing the best customer service available right. to, to clients. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? So my thoughts are, th those are excellent points. And I, but my, my view is a bit different. 
um, in that. So I'll I'll take you back a little bit. So in in academia, we have this process of called research ethics approval for anything that we want to do that collects data from humans or interacts with humans or animals or living things. So we need to go through an ethics approval process to show that the experiments we're going to do or the work, the research work we're going to do is not going to be harmful in any way. And then they, uh, they ask us for a protocol of how and what and to what extent we're going to be collecting data or interacting with people, where that data is going to be stored, how it's going to be used. And once, if, they're, if we're given approval to proceed with the research ethics approval, we were confined to doing exactly and only what we've been approved to do. So let's say the research ethics office approves that I collect, just making things up here, smoking habits of certain patients. I collect that data and I tell my research, research ethics office that I'm going to use this to predict cancer, for instance. And then once I collect the data, I find out, well, other than cancer, I can do this other thing with this data. I'm not allowed to do that unless I go back to my research ethics board and say, hey, look, I've collected this data. I'm going to do this. Am I allowed? Right? So, so in general, we only collect data for specific purposes to do certain things, and we're not able to generalize beyond it. Right? So my feeling is that when we're in certain domains, we are able to collect and integrate large amounts of data with good intentions. You know, let's collect all this banking data, for instance, or let's collect all this social service data or all this you know, personal information because we want to be good to the people and provide them good education, a good mortgage rate, um, you know, better services, customized delivery of services and so on. But I think that goes counter to this idea of every single individual has the right to own their own data and needs to be consenting for us to use that data for a certain purpose, right? So, for instance, if you go to a hospital, they can't be collecting all of your data for the hopes of running certain experiments that they might want to do in the future. There needs to be a process that says... Neymar, you're in the hospital, you're doing this surgery, we're going to take this data, and then we're going to specifically be using your data for this purpose. And he says yes or no, right? So I think what we need to be doing is to be, again, going back to my initial way of thinking about this, is we identify a need. We say there are certain sets, for instance, a certain set of kids in kindergarten who have learning problems. We're going to collect data specifically about that situation from these kids with particular consent from their uh, adults or supervisors, whoever provides the consent for those kids. And we're going to collect that data only for the sake of providing better education for that. Once that's done, we discard all that data, not use it for anything else, unless we have strict permission to use that data for something else, right? Because if you don't do that, then you open up the possibility of using the data for many, many, many different things for which we don't have consent. 
Right. Yeah. And uh, I think that's an important point. And uh, with open banking, open finance, it actually does follow that framework as mm-hmm. well, which is why things have been a bit tricky, I'll right. say, in some aspects, because um, a lot of these institutions are very used to having so much data and then being able to use it very liberally for a lot of different purposes. And that is not going to really fly anymore. So um, back to the, uh, if you think about the EULA agreements, for instance, mm-hmm. in open banking, that wouldn't be allowed. Like it would have to be very... Um, you know, layman terms type mm-hmm. of uh, language mm-hmm. where, that anyone can understand. Uh, and it would have to be, it can't be like, you know, 0.85 font and like uh, 300 pages. It would have to be very concise information, mm-hmm. exactly why the information is being collected and for and for what purpose and for how long. And uh, the good thing is that clients can revoke access as well. So mm-hmm. you can very easily give access for a particular uh, time period and then take that request wait. So, um, there's a lot of good things to it. Uh, it's just, uh, again, this like mass collection of data because obviously everyone's going to want to be able to get the best mortgage rate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, are there ways of enticing people to give extra data than they would really usually be willing to for a certain particular service? Because now there's like this extra like cherry that's been added. Oh, if you give us, you know, X, Y, Z as well, we'll, we'll give you this service too. And uh, these are some of the points that are being worked through. Mm-hmm. So it, it is something that will really revolutionize the, the way that we do things and yeah. make things more streamlined. AI is kind of susceptible to scope creep, right? So that's why we need to be really, really careful. Mm-hmm. So the policing, for instance, there's uh, there are apps that the police use to patrol certain areas. And it's been shown that the app has been developed to say, you know, at 8 p.m. you want to be at this place because, you know, there is crime. But it's it's shown that some police officers actually make arrests based on the recommendation of the app of where to patrol. So there's the potential of scope creep without you realizing it. So you, it need, so when you're collecting the data, building the applications, you need to be really, really, really mindful of what is the application that you're going to use it for yeah. uh, and not allow the scope creep to happen. No, that's fine. So, so yeah, like just adding to uh, uh, what Abraham was saying, again, the concept of consent, right? Again, like you brought up an interesting point that if you give an incentive to the customer that, okay, if we collect all this data, we're going to be able to give you a better rate, right? There is a very good chance that the customer is going to consent to uh, let you collect all this data, right? But uh, with the idea of consent comes the idea of like transparency as well, right? So I have uh, like uh, I have a couple of students working on uh, this area of research called uh, explainable artificial intelligence, right? So the idea is that because right now there's, there's algorithms, they work, the way they work is that you uh, click a button, you get a rate, which is great, right? That, oh, I'm crunching all these numbers, getting all this data, giving you the best rate possible, right? But how was that decision made, right? which parameters were used to make that decision. Like uh, all these uh, deep learning models, like you just throw data at it, it spits out the number, as you said, like as, as we were talking about it, the accuracy, the number. Right. But how was this decision made? So using these explainable AI tools, it was discovered, like it's relevant to uh, the financial sector as well, that I think it was someone in the US, I might be wrong about the location, but like uh, a person was getting a, uh, higher uh, uh like uh quote for a house or like a you know how they do the appraisal the oh, banks do the appraisal yes. yeah so they were getting uh uh basically a lower appraisal of their property in the same neighborhood where the neighbor was getting a 
higher uh, appraisal and the only difference between them was uh, race right one was a person of color the other person was white right so oh, yes i've i've heard yeah. of this so it was unfortunate it's very unfortunate and if you don't drill down to the the specific parameters that were used to make this decision you are never going to be able to find out right so now if both of these uh, clients went into the bank and they got their appraisal like they th- they thought that okay if i provide my data to this uh, algorithm i'm going to get a uh, like better appraisal compared to that's how the clients will be enticed right but from the client's point of view they may not even know that uh, this is happening right and again that is going to just perpetuate the social biases that we have because these algorithms learn from data and uh, engineers can't just throw their hands up in the air and say that oh the data is biased so the algorithm is biased you actually have to actively work there so that at least the even if the algorithm is biased at least it's transparent enough that look this is what's happening so cuz imagine like if we used an explainable ai type of tool like it's utopian like, like there's a lot of technical problems behind it but if we could actually see that okay this ai is giving me this number but it's taking the race into consideration right away you're going to raise a flag that hey this algorithm is actually not really good i can't take it i'm just going to do it myself so uh, with the idea of consent i think if like if we have the like basically awareness that ai algorithms can do this type of things there will be a push that okay even if you, it's fine you use ai like of course it makes our life easier makes the workflows better more efficient but it should be transparent enough it should be forthcoming that how things are being done instead of like just taking the data and spitting out a number right and i've heard this concept of releasing the code for mm. for various different things right um and the idea really be, being behind it is i believe like there's github repositories where you can go and you can actually see how things are calculated in certain algorithms um and perhaps that would be helpful like i'm sure that code is proprietary and you know most uh firms would not want to give it up but you know that might be a solution for if if you make it public if it's more open source then uh cuz uh Mozilla like Firefox mm-hmm. uh, sort of started out that way right yep. it was open code mm-hmm. and it was developers around the world that helped build it up so you could follow a similar concept perhaps uh with certain things that are for social good that are going to impact an entire society of where you or at least you release like certain parts of of the code uh to help um first of all have transparency you know to garner trust from consumers um and also there might be flaws there that someone can help you fix if mm-hmm. they go in and they look at it i think code is open code is great amazing we should support as much open source code as as possible um but also be mindful that we need open data as well and and transparency on what data has been collected right because you may have a pretty um you know um uh, good code but with the biased data you still create these biased uh, trained models right so i think your point about open code is is amazing we should definitely push for it but also transparency on on data uh, i want to touch on something uh, that nemal also said um about data and the potential for for creep um so there's this um so this idea of anonymizing personally identifiable information so you anonymize a data set and you say we're going to give you 
a rate on your insurance, for instance, but we're not going to look at your uh, race or your gender. We're going to take those attributes out of the decision-making process, and therefore we're going to make it fair. No difference between male or female, or no difference between your race, because the algorithm is not going to even see it. Um, there is now a lot of documented uh, studies that show even if you don't have the explicit PII information, the person, the identity information, the AI is able to infer those attributes from other things. For instance, uh, salary rates for similar positions, male versus female, the distribution is skewed in favor of male. Therefore, the algorithm can actually identify who's a male, who's not based on other things. Um, you're buying a house, you have postal code. Although I don't know what race you belong to, neighborhoods have race distributions. Therefore, the AI algorithm is able to predict or estimate what races you're likely to belong to and make decisions based on that. Um, there was a recent study by a group of MIT students who showed even if you take out sexual orientation of people, you can very accurately, the, the application they developed was called Gaydar, um, that you can very accurately identify which sexual orientation you belong to, even if it's hidden. Uh, so you can look at people's data, take out sex, race, sexual orientation, all of that. AI can predict very, very accurately all of that. So even if you think about anonymizing data, taking out personally identified information, you're still not safe uh, from the biases, right? So... Well, it's it's interesting how AI seems to want to just categorize people. <laughs> because because of the way we train it, right? Like, uh, like learning from data. I think that basically that paradigm itself is a bit flawed. But again, since the accuracy is so high, who cares, right? That's the problem, right? Because if you're learning from historical data, uh, this, uh, what Ibrahim was mentioning, will always happen, right? Because historically, uh, a, a certain race was disadvantaged financially, right? socioeconomically, right? Uh, similar to, uh, if, you come, if you think about sexual orientation, there's probably behavioral patterns, things uh, that do even, even like basically financial status, a lot of things, right? Like uh, because uh, a particular sexual orientation was probably discriminated against. So they probably had a, worse uh, financial and career trajectory so that data is going to be picked up by the ai and they will think i'm just simplifying a little bit that oh if someone went to this uh, school like not a good school in terms of grades uh, there's a chance that their sexual orientation is not one of the common because it, it just correlates the data with uh, the hidden variable right so even if we do not feed the data explicitly because of how the society has been structured because of because that we are learning from historical data it's going to be automatically incorporated into the algorithm because we're just learning from past data so to solve that again technically we can say that, that, that there are things that you can try to do like debias the data and stuff but even that's not foolproof at all right so what we really have to do is just be aware that this may happen and take explicit explicit measures that when this happens, we identify it and uh, either solve it or don't use it. Right. That's that's a really good point where it, it all seems to come back to data. Mm. Uh, I feel like most things nowadays come back to data because everything's 
being uh, digitized and technology is very data driven. Um, I feel like I can talk about this for hours, but I, I did want to touch on VR because I have you here, Nomal. And um, we've seen, so my focus is obviously in the financial industry, mm-hmm. wealth management. Um, during the pandemic, obviously there were shutdowns. You know, people weren't able to leave their homes and uh, advisors had to figure out a way to connect with clients. And so, uh, and so they started using Zoom and mm-hmm. Skype and Teams and so on and so forth. But there's always this need to do more, right? To have a more sociable connection than, you know, perhaps like a static frozen screen mm-hmm. <laughs> via whatever application you're using. And that was where, when I would say VR got very popular within that industry, at least talk of it did. And there are a few firms now out there that are experimenting with different things. Um, like the goggles is interesting. Mm-hmm. So the fact that even if you now bring a client into your office, you can use goggles to create a certain experience for them, right? Um, a hologram is another technology that I've heard of where you can be, if you're, let's say, um, you know, a taxation professional on the West Coast and you need to, you're, you're meant to meet with a client uh, in Ontario, you can just like beam into this box mm-hmm. now and there's a hologram of you and it looks like you're right there. <laughs> which is really fascinating. And uh, you've done a fair bit of work with this technology. So I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So there, there are a lot of potential in VR. As you were mentioning, like recently, the most exciting thing happened in the VR research industry. And what is that? Apple announced uh, uh, the Vision mm-hmm. Pro, the Apple, because you know that whenever Apple announces something, you know that <laughs> consumers are going to pick it up, right? So <laughs> yes. that was one of the most exciting days in VR research, right? But what you mentioned, like the sense of presence in like, uh, because VR or augmented reality, like we usually call it XR, which is like extended reality. It's like extending your reality itself, right? So in XR, like, of course, like the sense of immersion is a big uh, thing, right? That that you can, like as as you were saying, that if you're in a meeting room, you can essentially be in remote places and like just beam them into that place, like with the hollow either with holograms or with like VR headsets and whatnot, right? So technologically, there's a lot of potential, right? So, but you will see that the uptake is a bit slow because of the expense required. Currently, the expense is the biggest issue, right? So uh, like one of the uh, concerns I have with uh, VR uptake is that this this actually interestingly came up in one of the studies uh, that we did. And it again uh, goes back to like touching on many different things that we have discussed before. Like the project is... Uh, uh, we are doing a project with the Holland Brewview Hospital in Toronto, right? Uh, so this uh, in this project, what we are trying to do was again, uh, it, it came during the pandemic that uh, Holland Brewview uh, uh, has a big patient population on the autism uh, spectrum, right? Uh, so they need a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So that therapy is one on one with the doctor. Take needs a lot of time during pandemic. There was a lot of disruption, and these kids need therapy on a regular basis, right? So. As an engineer, I wrote the research proposal, of course, first, and I got too excited. I'm like, oh, you know what? We're just going to do it in VR, right? And uh, we're just going to use AI to assess the emotional state of the kids and then just going to solve it, everything. Very adventurous. (laughs) Then I sent it to my (laughs) clinician partner, and her first response was that, are you crazy? Right? Like that. (laughs) Because there are so many issues there, right? Like to unpack it one by one, right? Uh, First thing is that... uh, uh, with VR, as I, going back to my first point, uh, like digital divide is a big issue in VR, right? Uh, because 
first thing that my uh, clinician partner she mentioned is that you can't just do it in VR. You have to do it on uh, tablets. You have to do it on computers because a lot of these kids uh, can't afford a VR headset. Because if you're thinking about home-based uh, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, like they can't buy a four hundred dollar headset. Uh, like now for the research study, you may buy it and. Like you may buy 10 headsets and then uh, do a data collection, show that your research is working well, but what will be the uptake? What is the point of that, right? So uh, so my concern with, uh, like, in general for immersive reality is that it is great in terms of increasing the sense of presence. Currently, we're doing the data collection for that, and the kids really love the VR experience and whatnot, right? So, but uh, the, my concern is that, yeah, like, it's going to basically increase the digital divide a lot more, right? Because unless we can... Uh, like uh, bring back bring the prices down make commodity hardware that is that can go to everyone and and everyone can uh, access the hardware as easily as possible right it's gonna just increase uh, the digital divide among us right so that's number one right and number two the point that uh, the in that project that was brought up was that the sense of social isolation in like immersive reality right uh, so uh, if we get too comfortable with this, we're all going to become like, you know, that movie Wally, right? So we're all going to become like, just sit on a chair, like wear our goggles and just go around like that, right? And that can uh, create a lot of uh, social isolation issues, right? I, I know that after post-pandemic, there's already so much social anxiety among people. You can't, you don't want to be in a crowd, right? You just want to go back home and stay in a room. Like, these things have become an issue, right? So so with uh, the advent of uh, uh, this uh, XR, right? We actually have to pay very close attention to it. That again, I think the main thing is the, uh, these two are very closely tied, right? Since I work in both spaces, AI and XR, right? You have to be, you have to have human drivers behind it, right? So for the for the health, uh, the CBT application, not what now what we are doing is that the clinician will always be on call, right? They will walk the kid through the VR experience, right, and then. They will talk to the kid meanwhile the kid is so that they don't feel alone, they don't feel lost, they don't feel nervous in the experience because because you are doing like sensitive exposure therapy here. So you can't just have like technology take over, right? So I think this applies equally to these both spaces that as long as you have a human driver behind it, it's okay. So the examples that you provided like like office meetings, like very very good examples of XR applications, right? Uh, but again, we have to be careful that the human drivers are always behind the technology and the technology is not like taking over autonomously. That that makes sense. And I think uh, you, you mentioned immersiveness. And I, so I, I learned about that a while ago and I find it really interesting that uh, the way our brains have developed is that we really can't, uh, there's no distinction between what you experience with a VR headset in virtual reality with versus what you experience in real life. So, mm -hmm. for instance, if I were to go on a roller coaster at Canada's Wonderland, the, that experience versus if I were to go on a roller coaster with a VR headset would be very similar. Like my brain wouldn't really know how to differentiate those two memories. It would be as if I was on a roller coaster both times. And I think that has some ethical implications. Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly when you are speaking about office meetings, when you are speaking about, you know, advisors uh, and clients in the sense that, you know, can this technology be taken advantage of where the advisor presents this beautiful dream? You know, let's say 
uh, you go into their office and they show you this beautiful island that they want to plan for you so that you can go on vacation, you know, for six weeks every year. Just that once you retire, right? Just as an example. Um, now, what are, uh, what are the possibilities of that actually happening or that not happening? It could all be done in very good faith, but just the fact that you've like used this technology to implement this very real vision into this person, uh, I, I find a bit concerning. And obviously there's been other issues with when VR headsets are used and different uh uh, occurrences that can that can happen mm-hmm. that can cause trouble or trauma for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so just how do we sort of mitigate some of that and how do we, I suppose, become better at using this technology so that it doesn't affect us as much, if that's even possible? Uh, so uh, I, these are all like very good points, right? In terms of like, because uh, like, I think what we are, uh, uh, what we are mentioning was that uh, like how, uh, like the VR spaces can be used in bad faith, right? Like in metaverse, there was a lot of things about like, you know, uh, sexual abuse and whatnot. Because when you go into a VR space, you think that there is no consequence to your actions, but there are humans sitting behind the other VR headset. So there are obviously, even if it's two avatars, there are consequences to things you are doing, right? So I think uh, like uh, going back to the things that we have discussed from an AI point of view, I think those things equally apply here, right? Like the basically the raising the awareness right that we are we are going into a much more immersive environment it can be addictive it can take a toll on your uh, on your mental health right raising awareness the technology developers providing more, like putting more regulations on them right like having a governing body for xr right so ieee recently came up with like saying this I think IEEE is the engineering institute, right? Uh, so that came up with this ethical uh, list of ethical considerations that you have to take to develop uh, XR applications. So accessibility is a big part of it. Then this ethical considerations is a big part of it. Don't make things addictive, right? So again, I think those things that, because those uh, those are just guidelines, right? So I think those guidelines need to become laws. Like there need to be regulatory bodies that, uh, uh, that looks at these things and above all i think we have to have uh, like education of xr like because xr like if you look at the hype cycle xr is like still a little behind ai right mm-hmm. so but it's gonna catch up right with the things that are coming up so i think if we start now and educate people about the uh like about the you know the bad consequences of uh, this type of technology i think that's how we can kind kind of develop a more like healthy solution to these things Definitely. We definitely need to look more in this area because it is very emerging and there's a lot of considerations Mm -hmm. to be thought of. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, we were speaking about ethics and Abraham, you run an ethics lab. So (laughs) uh, tell us about some of the work that you're doing in that lab um, and just, I suppose, how we can be more ethical when it comes to some of these uh, issues that we're dealing with uh, in today's society when it comes to AI, be it VR, AI language models and whatnot. So you're asking the million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to preface by saying I don't have an answer um, exactly for that question. Um, But as Neymar said earlier, I think um, we are behind on awareness of responsibility, right? So I wouldn't call it ethics, but I would call it responsibility and being aware of the responsibility. So we don't, so when we, we talk about, um, you know, responsible AI or responsible technology development, 
I don't want to attribute a ideological stance because that might mean different thing to different communities, different people, different um, sub-communities. But being aware of your responsibility as people who build technology or build AI, uh, and we don't do enough, if at all, to create this awareness of the sense of responsibility within our education system at the universities, right? So our, our students go through technical training, but they are never exposed to the hard decisions that they need to be making when they're on the job. And therefore they assume it's always the responsibility of someone else to think about the hard decision. Um, so to give you an example, we had a colleague um, who came to my lab from, uh, from social work at McGill, and they had identified that a lot of photos that uh, doctors take and publish papers, uh, case reports, end up on Google. And so he came to my lab and he presented with his students uh, because we do a lot of search. And he said, we've uncovered this really, really dire situation where photos of patients, not faces, not identifiable, like a photo of a lung or a photo of a, that's not, you know, you can't link it directly back to the patient, but they're still there. And he said, we've identified this really serious problem. And my lab, being all engineering students, they looked at each other and said, uh, so what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that um, there is a big divide uh, between what we think as engineering and, and scientists as being totally fine and what other disciplines consider as being seriously problematic. And so what we are trained at school is how do you optimize for best performance? How do you build the best next thing? How do you build the next shiny tool? Um, what we don't talk about enough is when you're building this, what are the things that you need to be think thinking about, right? So our program, um, when we started, we had this idea of there must be a way to teach these engineering kids. You know, you take a course, you take two courses and you know, you become uh, aware. And so we started talking to social scientists and one of the very interesting, I talked to a, a colleague um, a psychologist and he said, there's literature that shows the more you do ethics training, the more likely it becomes that they don't follow your ethics training at the <laughs> end, <laughs> um, which I didn't know. And we were trying to push multiple ethics training it's courses. It's ironic. Yes, it is. Um, so the idea is, uh, what we are now pursuing is you need to create an environment where different points of view exist. So our training program now has engineering students and we have social science students from different disciplines. And so we're not pushing them to take a certain course on ethics or introduce them to ethics principles, but rather they talk to each other. Mm. So the engineering students bring their point of view, which is then critiqued by social science peers and, and, and other researchers. And then that dialogue creates the awareness, right? So instead of us saying, you're on the job, someone gives you this task, here's a checklist that makes you ethical or responsible. We're avoiding that. We're saying, here's the type of people that you should be talking to. If you're going to make this decision about rolling out and human resources, AI technology, 
it shouldn't be you and your friend and your other nerdy computer science AI specialist who de design and deliver. Here's 10 other type of people that you should be talking to, hearing their point of view. Uh, here's how you ha engage in critical discussion, constructive collaboration, and so on. And that then brings about the sense of responsibility. I am as an individual responsible for the decisions I make, regardless of whether my firm has a PR department, a law department, there's lawyers involved and so on. That doesn't take away from, from my personal responsibility. That's great. And I suppose, especially nowadays when we speak about ethics and personal responsibility, uh, digital media, social media, they all come to mind. And Numel, I know that you do a lot of work in this space. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, before we wrap up, uh, please tell us about some of the research that you've done. So uh, it uh, goes back to like what Ibrahim was saying. Like, I think when you have a like interdisciplinary team, the discussions and uh, like the ethical considerations automatically uh, come about, right? For example, uh, like uh, as I said, like I have a cross appointment at the creative school through the Master of Digital Media program, right? It's a one year master's program at TMU, right? So there we see like whenever I uh, teach the, that cohort, right? Usually it's like a class of like say 25, 30, 40 students, right? They come from different backgrounds. There's computer scientists sitting there. There's social scientists sitting there. There's people from creative writing background sitting in the same room, right? Under the same roof. So even if I'm teaching like a very dry, a dry technical concept, for example, we do uh, like last winter, I taught a course on like XR development, like augmented virtual reality development, right? So the discussions were always like this, uh, what Ibrahim was saying, right? Like, it's not like the computer science students there have taken a lot of ethics courses, but whenever they were coming up with a cool solution, right away, there'll be pushback from the social scientist in the room, right? If the narrative of the story being developed is not uh, like good enough, right? Not taking into consideration like different perspectives, the creative writing background students are going to rebel, right? So. <laughs> They keep each other in check, right? There is a balance there, right? So I uh, recently, uh, through the Master of Digital Media program with one student, we did a project uh, uh, in partnership with U of T at uh, uh, Uganda, right? In a village in Uganda. So we, what we are do doing was we are developing XR experiences uh, to uh, like, again, for uh, therapy, right? Among uh, youth for like, they have a lot of like poverty is like poverty, food insecurity, so we were just, we just created like a uh, avatar that like talks them through these issues and how they can deal with it when they have this type of like food insecurity, like gender, uh, like gender issues, then like poverty in general, right? So all these things like, and, and that project was like really, really eye-opening because as I said, there are so many checks and balances. The first iteration we made again, we tried to just make a game, right? Because that's what we're used to, right? And right away, we knew that, okay, this is not going to fly. They have never uh, worn a VR headset in their life. They have never, never used a controller. So you can't do that. That's out of the question. Then you have to develop it in five languages. Like as uh, academic in North America, we don't even think about these things. And among those five languages, three are like not spoken by many people. So we had to find translators to do this type of thing. We had to make the experience so that it adheres to the village like customs right how people actually see uh, each other's how the gender norms are you can just go there and like as ibrahim was saying just teach them an ethics course and be done with it right it has to fit 
they are mold right so that you slowly uh, like they slowly basically bring uh, things out right so i think that's what going forward i think that should be the model that we follow right that we just put people from different uh, expertise together right now of course uh, in a, in an undergrad uh, course it's probably harder to do right uh, so uh, maybe ibrahim has different opinions about it right but <laughs> but like at least after that when people are trained in a certain way i think we should like when we do research that has real world impact i think this is how we have to do it right just have to put people from different uh, background different training together so that they keep each other in check definitely i can speak to you guys for several more hours but we do need to wrap up uh, do either of you have any final thoughts you would like to share before we go this was uh, very engaging thank you very much Worse. Same. Yeah, I could go on for another couple of hours. Probably, <laughs> I know there's, really there's still. I feel like we just scratched the surface. <laughs> there's so much more. So I will definitely have you guys back for a round two. Now for a bit of housekeeping. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share, like, and subscribe. And we will catch you at the next one.